Our Father and our God, loving Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning, a word which we might find challenging, indeed will find challenging. But Father, we pray that you would grant us the faith to believe it and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I remember like it was yesterday, the day that my parents dropped me off at college. I made my college decision for purely programmatic reasons. I, I chose it because the school appeared to be the best choice uh, for the major that I was interested in, and it was also a, a place uh, where I would have some opportunity to participate in, in uh, athletics at the college level. But it was five hours away from home, and absolutely no one from my hometown or even from my home county went to school there. And most, in fact, had never even heard of that little college in western Pennsylvania. And I knew absolutely no other students when I went there. Now, my parents and I were on vacation the week before they dropped me off. We, we were camping, which was normal for us in the Hawkins clan in those days. We were pulling a pop-up tent trailer uh, and our 1963 Greenbrier Chevrolet van. It was packed not only with our camping stuff, with, but with all of the stuff that I would need for dormitory life. Uh, like most guys headed off to college and away from home, I was excited. Uh, we uh, found the dorm, got access to the room, met my roommate, unloaded all my stuff, and I, and I couldn't wait to unload my parents. <laughs> and send them off and back home and get started on my grand adventure, free at last, right? I think that was the attitude of most college students in the early 70s. But I was surprised by my reaction when that moment came, when I said goodbye to mom and dad and waved as the van headed out of town. I was overcome. Surprisingly, for the first time in my life, with loneliness, I felt like I didn't belong there. My roommate didn't seem to like anything that I liked. His interests were totally different than mine. His eight-track tape collection had no music that I liked. I didn't have an eight-track tape collection. I knew no one at the school except the basketball coach, and so I felt lost. I felt out of place, almost to the point of, of tears. I felt like I didn't belong. This was another world, and there was very little in it I could relate to. I just didn't think I fit in. I wondered how in the world did I end up here? That's what I felt in the moments after my parents drove away. 
Now, I have to tell you, it wasn't all doom and gloom. I learned, as we mostly do in those times of life, to adapt. I tried to find out how to make some accommodations, and I found out, first of all, where the basketball players were playing pickup games in the preseason, and I weaseled my way onto the court and learned to make some friends that way. And when classes started, I, I felt like I was a bit more in my element. Long story short, in the end, I ended up having a very good college experience. I had gone from feeling like a misfit uh, to being able to call the place in some sense home. But it took a good deal of adjustment and accommodation. But initially, I felt like I was out of place and I didn't fit in. Maybe you feel like that as a Christian. Maybe you feel like you're out of place, like you don't fit in, or you're uneasy in your current culture, or in our current culture, I should say. Maybe you feel like you're swimming upstream, like you're walking down the street and literally everyone is headed in the opposite direction. It's like we're facing a cultural tsunami. Everything we've taken for granted for our entire lives is being devastated by overwhelming and unfamiliar tides. Maybe you feel like you're like a missionary. You've left your home behind, and, and the place where you've landed speaks another language and practices a myriad of customs that you've never heard of. And it all leaves us with a sense of anxiety a sense of unease, even angst, that feeling of apprehension and insecurity. And as a Christian, you don't feel like you fit in. You feel like that from time to time in this day and age. There is a, a technical theological phrase for this sense of not fitting in. For those of you that like to take notes on the sermon, you probably want to write this down. The technical phrase is this, it's called the normal Christian life. And according to Jesus, it's not just that we don't fit in, it's that the world we live in actually hates us. Text is John 15 verses 18 through 25, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. 
In this section of the Gospel of John, known as the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus has been encouraging his disciples. He has been telling them that he's leaving them, and that is quite a a troubling issue to them. But in order to lessen their anxiety, he's been giving them all kinds of words to to lift their spirits, to give them confidence. He he told them he's going to prepare a place for them uh, and that their hearts should not be troubled. He, He promises them intimacy with the Father. He tells them that they will accomplish even greater things than he has accomplished. He encourages them with the promise of answering prayers that are offered in his name. He promises them that once he leaves, he will send the Spirit of God to indwell them, that it will be better for them once he leaves because then God will actually live in them by his Spirit. He tells them that he's leaving his peace with them and that they shouldn't be afraid. And he he gives them the key to experiencing all of these benefits. He, He tells them that he is the true vine, and they need to abide in the vine so they can bear fruit. And as they do that, they will experience the love of the Father and the love of the Son, not to mention the fullness of joy. And so he encourages them. But then he tells them, by the way, the world hates you. No wonder you feel out of place. No wonder you feel that you don't fit in, that you're anxious or insecure, or maybe that you're even depressed. The world, you see, doesn't see things the same way you do. The world is inherently suspicious of you if you're a Christian. The world makes all kinds of assumptions about you, many of which are not true. They are often lies, in fact. The world sees you as a threat. And of course, we all want to be liked, we all want to fit in, we all want to belong, but as Christians, we don't fit in. We don't belong. We aren't universally liked. The world hates the followers of Jesus. Now, as we begin to explore this passage and try to figure out what Jesus is teaching us about our troublesome relationship with the world, we need to do a little bit of biblical and interpretive homework. The word world, cosmos in the Greek, is one of those words, and we have many of them, that is used to mean different things in different contexts. And if we don't understand what it means in this context, then we're liable to misunderstand and misapply what Jesus is teaching, and that will get us in even more trouble than we're already in. Uh, Even in the Gospel of John, for instance, the word world is used to mean at least seven different things. The world can be used to mean simply the created universe, all of it. John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, the created universe. Also, the word world can mean human beings who are in the created world. You've heard of John 3.16, haven't you? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, human beings in the created world. The word world can mean human beings who are unbelievers. In John 1.10, we read, the world did not know him. The word world can also be human beings for whom Christ died. In John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him human beings for whom Christ died. The word world can also be human beings in general. 
In John chapter 7, Jesus' family tells him, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, to everybody. The word world can also mean simply planet Earth. John 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Could mean simply the planet itself. And then the word world could mean the world system that is antagonistic to God. Its values and its motivations and its operations, the world system which is antagonistic to God. John 16, 11, the ruler of this world, who's that? Satan has been judged. John 14, 16 to 17, 17 especially, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. That's the world as the world system which is antagonistic to God. It is this latter meaning that Jesus explains in our, passion, in our passage today. World as the anti-God system aligned with the rule of Satan, antagonistic to God, to his kingdom, to its values, and to his son and to his people. So when Jesus says the world hates you, he's not so much talking about people in the world, but about the world system which is arrayed against the kingdom's values. Now, some of the opposition may be expressed by, and certainly is, in and through certain people, but people per se are not the enemy of God's people. The enemy is the systemic hatred for the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is what? Not against what? Flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Dear friends, we hear a lot these days about systemic injustice of one sort or another. Let me tell you that the Bible's position is that the one systemic injustice in our world today is the hatred of God. Because that's what the word world means in this scripture context. The world system, which is antagonistic to God and to his kingdom values. Now, why does the world hate Christians? Well, the world hates Christians, first of all, because of our association with Christ, whom the world also hates. And so back to our text in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christians are objects of the world's hatred because of their association with Jesus Christ. This is truly guilt by association. If we are Christians and if we are public about it, we will sooner or later be subject to antagonism, Persecution and hatred of the world, not because of anything we might do as for much of the kinds of things that we do is actually for the welfare of others, even indeed for the welfare of the very world that hates us. But we will be objects of animosity for no other reason than that we follow Jesus. 
This issue is also implied in verse 19 where Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Now we'll talk about being chosen out of the world in a moment. But if we emphasize the I that Jesus uses in that, in that saying, it then becomes clear that we'll be the object of the world's hatred because of our association with Christ. He says, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. I chose you, Jesus says. It, it wasn't that we decided to leave the world. Jesus called us out of the world. And because Jesus called us out of the world, the world hates everybody that he called. So we are the objects of the world's persecution and hatred because we follow Jesus. Our association with him is what puts us under jeopardy. In addition to that, we are said to be hated by the world because the word world is this antagonistic system which is against God, and we've been chosen out of that world. The values of the world are not God's values. The aspirations of the world are not God's aspirations for his humankind. The pleasures of the world are not the pleasures God intends for human flourishing. The activities and pastimes of the world are not the activities and pastimes that please God. And to the extent that we truly follow Jesus, our values, our aspirations, our pleasures, our activities and pastimes are contrary to the world's. Let's face it, we're strange. Remember the King James put it this way, we're a peculiar people. We're out of sync with the modus operandi in the world. We're, we stick out like sore thumbs. We're like rocks in the gears of the world's machine, and the world doesn't like that. We're not of the world. Now, we used to be of the world, and that's what the world really hates, to see its own reject its values and aspirations and behavior. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to this. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this, such were some of you. Such were some of you. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. We used to be of the world, but now we've left the world behind. And the world hates that. Or Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we, were, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus chose us out of the world. We've left the world behind, and the world hates that. And then thirdly, the reason why the world hates Christians is because 
We are persecuted for the sake of Christ's name. That's what the text tells us. The world hates followers of Jesus because of one primary value that we all hold above all other values, and that's this. We live to glorify Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, dear friends? That is our overarching goal and purpose in life. We live to glorify Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus is the creator of all things and upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. We know that Jesus is the light of the world, John 8.12 and 9.5. We know that Jesus is the savior of the world, John 4.42. We know that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of God, Colossians 1.19. We know that Jesus, through his death, has reconciled all things to himself, Colossians 1.20. We know that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. We know that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, reigning until he makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet, Ephesians 1.20 and 21. We know that all things are in subjection to Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.22. We know that Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God, Romans 5.9. There is no being dear friends, in the universe who deserves our praise and adoration more than Jesus Christ. And there is nothing we would rather do than praise Jesus. But Jesus says this, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. For my name's sake. The first thing that the believer in Jesus longs to do is exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing that the world wants to do is to exalt Jesus Christ. The world would rather have relegated Jesus to the dump heap, dung heap of history, to disappear as a mere footnote in the annals of the historian. But Jesus doesn't go away. Here we are 2,000 years later. We're still praising Jesus, aren't we? Herod tried to get rid of him as a mere baby. The Jewish religious leaders tried to stone him. Pilate tried to eradicate him as a political problem. Saul tried to stamp out his followers until Jesus himself stunned him on the road to Damascus. The Romans tried on multiple occasions to destroy those who would exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Other religious groups have sought to destroy Christianity over the centuries. Atheists have sought to relegate Christianity to a strange philosophical afterthought. But here we are, still exalting and proclaiming the name of Jesus after all these years. He won't go away. And the world hates that. The world hates those who follow Jesus because of our association with Jesus, because we are not of the world any longer, and because we seek to glorify Jesus, whom they seek to stamp out like a bug. But the bottom line reason why the world hates followers of Jesus is that the world hates Jesus. Two reasons are given in this passage why the world hates Jesus. The first one is this, the world hates the Word of Christ. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Jesus came and he spoke, and the world didn't like what he said. Some people say things and people hate them for saying it. That's because some people speak arrogantly, and some people are hateful in their speech, 
And some people are selfish in their speech. And some people are insensitive and say things that are deeply offensive. And some people are just mean in their speech. And they're just nasty. And some people are hypocritical. They say one thing and they do the opposite. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news today. And it's not just politicians who do it. A lot of the pundits, so-called journalists, say the same things. But Jesus never spoke like that. He never gave anyone a reason to be hating him for his speech. He was never arrogant. He was always humble. He was never selfish. In fact, he gave himself up for us. He was always gentle in his speech. He was never hypocritical. So what was it about Jesus' speech that was such a catalyst for hatred? Well, when Jesus spoke, it exposed the sinfulness of the world's speech. The world, you see, was used to a relative form of judgment of their own speech. The world could be a little arrogant, but not too much. The world could be a little hypocritical, but, but not too often. The world could be a little selfish, but not too obviously. Jesus' speech revealed how pathetically vapid and insidious was the world's speech. It showed it to be sin. And secondly, the world hates Christ's works. Verse 24 of John 15, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. We've all recognized that the Gospel of John is oriented around signs. Seven, to be exact, in the Gospel of John. Signs are miracles, things that only God could do. Even Nicodemus understood that. And in doing these miracles... Jesus was doing the works of God. He demonstrated through those signs that he is, in fact, God incarnate. The world couldn't just dismiss Jesus as some charismatic teacher or worse, some strange, deranged madman. No, Jesus, in his works, showed that he was God. And his works embarrassed the world. And the world discovered it was in over its head that the world saw that there is one greater than the world present. And the world hates that the supreme sovereign manifested that presence. The world hates Jesus because of his words, and the world hates Jesus because of his works. And so the world is guilty. Verse 22 says they have no excuse now for their sin. Christ's word exposes the world's sin. Harry Ironside told the story of the time in which inland Africa had been earliest visited by missionaries. And in one particular mission, the wife of an African chief visited the mission station. And the missionary at that station had a little mirror hanging on a tree outside of his home. And the woman coming out of her pagan practices had never seen a mirror had never understood what it was for, and so she looked into it. And when she did, she saw the hideous paintings on her hardened face. She saw the ugliness of it all for the first time in her life. So she asked the missionary, who is that horrible-looking person inside that tree? The missionary said, it's not the tree. The, the glass is a reflection of of your own face. She couldn't believe it until she actually took the mirror off the tree and held it in her hand. Then she said to the, mister, the missionary, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? 
The missionary didn't want to sell it, but she was insistent, and so he set a price just to avoid trouble, and once, once she had it, she said, I will never have it making faces at me again, and she threw it on the ground, and it shattered into pieces. That's the way the world looks at Christ. It hates Christ because he exposes the sin of the world, and they can't stand its ugliness when it's revealed. Christ's works also vindicates his person. He demonstrates through his works that he's God, and the world will have no God before themselves. They will do anything to avoid submitting to anyone else other than themselves, and certainly submitting to Jesus. And the world has no excuse and is condemned for its hatred. Earlier in the Gospel of John, John 3, Jesus says this, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, listen, that the light has come into the world and men what? Loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes into the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, how should we respond to the world's hatred? Uh, that's the thing. We don't respond in kind. We don't respond in kind. The first thing that we need to do is we need to rejoice when the world hates us. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of because of me. And then he says this, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So first of all, rejoice, even in the midst of the hatred of the world. And secondly, love your enemies and pray for them. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then finally, you should count the cost of following Jesus. Are you willing to endure the hatred of the world for the sake of his name? Are you? Paul wrestled with this, and he came to this conclusion, Philippians chapter 3. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, listen, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Fellowship of his sufferings. 
being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Are you willing to follow Jesus even though the world hates him and hates you? Our Heavenly Father, bring us to that place of submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are willing to be what you call us to be in spite of whatever pressures and influences are unleashed upon us by the world system, which is antagonistic to God. Give us the capacity to love our neighbors and even those who would be against us vocally and instrumentally. Help us to pray for them. Help us to walk in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ, in love, communicating that the gospel is true and that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, calling people out of the world to belong to him. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.